Hello, you are listening to the Higher Intelligence Podcast presented by My Working Soul. This is Kareen, and I'm really excited to greet you after a brief hiatus with a new episode featuring a fantastic human being, close to my heart, Dr. Alan Briskin. I first met Dr. Alan Briskin through his book, The Stirring of Soul in the Workplace. I have always believed that every book has the potential to change my life. This explains my penchant for reading all types of things. I am the type of person that likes to power my love for knowledge with the possibility of higher purpose. It's part of the reason that this podcast was built, to explore a diversity of topics about work. When I first discovered The Stirring of Soul in the Workplace, it was one of those books that I simply could not put down. I carried it with me to yoga studios, various coffee houses, brought it to empty grass fields and secluded benches, feeling a deep resonance with a topic I think about often, what it means to have a soul. According to Dr. Alan Briskin, the qualities that come to mind when we think of soul, meaning, memory, wildness, beauty, divinity, these are all necessary elements for navigating organizations into the future. With this stirring message of what it means to be a human, I welcome you to episode six, Potential, Purpose, and Possibility. All the experts are agreed that in each of us, there are deep reservoirs of ability, even genius, that we habitually fail to use. Why? We know that most people desire by nature to succeed. But what is success? What is this word that has become so famous in the world? What does it mean? Most people don't know what success is all about. And since they don't know what it's about, they really don't know where to look for it. Success is really nothing more than the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. This means that any person who knows what he's doing and where he's going is a success. Any person with a goal toward which he's working is a successful person. This means that the boy in, in high school who's working toward a diploma and the boy in college toward a degree is just as successful as any human being on earth because he knows what he's doing, why he's getting up in the morning, and where he's going. But conversely, if a person doesn't know what he's working toward, what it is he wants, doesn't have a goal toward which he's working, then he must, at least by this definition, be called unsuccessful. Why isn't then, with this simple definition, why isn't everyone successful? Dr. Alan Briskin is the co-founder of the Collective Wisdom Initiative and a consultant, artist, and researcher. His groundbreaking book, The Stirring of Soul in the Workplace, written in the mid-1990s, foreshadowed the growing need in business organizations for purpose, meaning, and practical wisdom. His co-authored book, The Power of Collective Wisdom, earned the Nautilus Award in the category Business and Leadership and a second co-authored work, Daily Miracles, was awarded Book of the Year by the American Journal of Nursing in the area of public interest and creative works. Dr. Briskin is also formally recognized as a noted humanist scholar. His interest in archetypal psychology, wisdom traditions, and the unconscious life of groups has led him on a unique journey, personally and professionally. Having studied depth psychology and the history of social institutions, including prisons, mental asylums, and public schools, Dr. Briskin turned his attention to the workplace and the history of management theories and practice. As an organizational consultant focusing on healthcare and education, he became fascinated with the courage, resilience, and challenges his colleagues and clients encounter on a daily basis. In all his work, there is an affirmation of the principle of genuine human encounter, a belief mirrored in the words of Martin Buber, that all real living is meeting. 
Dr. Briskin lives in Oakland, California, and has held multi-year consulting contracts with Lucasfilm, Sutter Health, Western University, Kaiser Permanente, and the Goy Peace Foundation, headquartered in Japan. He has been an executive advisor to the CEO of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and remains a senior advisor to the One Humanity Institute in Ostwinschim, Poland. Welcome to the Higher Intelligence Podcast. My name is Corrine and I'm your host. Today we are so excited to be speaking with Dr. Alan Briskin. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's good to be here. We've had a really great interaction so far. We got connected on LinkedIn. And going into this conversation today, I revisited one of my favorite books, The Stirring of Soul in the Workplace, which is something that you wrote and we've discussed. I was also thinking about when you spoke in regards to the aspects of existence that are sacred, everything you discussed in regards to collective wisdom and also fields. When you think about these concepts that you've been working with, what's the sensation or what's the color or what's the feeling that that rises to the surface in this moment? I'm grateful that my life took me on this journey. And the rewards of a kind is uh, that I anticipated we would be in a turbulent world. You know, what I saw and what I understood is that uh, there was a certain direction we were taking in the West, in, in Western consciousness and in the economy that would move toward hyper-individualism. And, and some, much of that, you know, was the case. And so to me, I'm watching the consequences of seeing ourselves as fragmented from each other. So we're sitting here today in the midst of a war going on between Russia and Ukraine and Israeli and Gaza you know, a number of people kind of lose their mind during this time because there's, there's such suffering. And to practice, what does it mean to live with the sacred dimension? It doesn't mean escaping from the world. It's the opposite. It's being in touch with reality, being in touch with the continuum of human behavior and doing what I can to be supportive of people, doing what I can to bring awareness that that some of the consequences we faced has come from this fragmentation and hyper-individualism and that there are ways back. There is ways back to weaving our relationships and weaving our communities and weaving our nations. I truly respect and am heartened personally by the immense peaceability of that response. And you've alluded to some things that personally are very painful for the world. And yet there's peace in that response. I, I feel enlightened in terms of just seeing a path forward where sometimes it feels like there is none. And when you're talking about the collective wisdom, and I, I relate that to something I've heard you say in other conversations in regards to collective folly. Can you shed some light on the distinction between collective wisdom and collective folly, the part we all play in that um, and how that dimensionality infuses the reality in which we live in. Yeah. Well, I want to pick up first on something you said, because I think many in the audience are consciously or unconsciously aware of this, which is you read the paper, you turn on the radio, you hear friends, and there's a certain kind of um, implicit fatalism that creeps in. You know, that there is, you know, we, our logical cognitive minds can't fix it all. And so for some, it may manifest as depression. It may manifest as um, physical symptoms. But it can also manifest as just becoming more busy. It can manifest by just sort of trying to do more and more to not feel in our bodies, you know, what, what, what we're caught up in. And so uh, to talk about collective wisdom and collective folly is to talk about feeling safe again, to return to our bodies, to return what emotions move through us, to return to the psychological safety of being able to talk to others without finding ourselves in an argument. And 
the work we did for over 10 years, talking to people from around the world, illuminated for us that there were groups going on now and have been going on for many years in which they do achieve a certain intimacy, a certain psychological safety, depending on the context. It can look different. I work with a group of physicians who are chiefs of different departments, and they've come to really respect each other and talk to each other. So it doesn't have to be the dramatic you know, image of people hugging and crying on each other, uh, but, but it can be just simply that we know that we can contribute and we can contribute more together than apart. And so collective wisdom at its most basic was the understanding that as much as we could do alone and should do alone, there's certain things that we can't do unless it's with others. And so we have to find ways, develop the skills to do that. The other part of collective wisdom led me to my work. Currently I'm working on fields and the idea of the noetic. The noetic comes out of the, of the Greek word noose. And in its context, it was pointing us to a, a self-regulating cosmic intelligence working for good ends. I'll say that again, a self-regulating cosmic intelligence working for good ends. And in its context, it comes from the Socratic dialogues. It was an intuition of what we now know scientifically to be the case that the universe has a certain kind of self-regulation that allows us to not, you know, explode outward or explode inward. And the very, ex our very existence is because of this tentative harmony that it maintains itself without human intervention. And so good ends didn't mean uh, just being nice. It, it had to do with resonance and harmonies and proportion. And so collective wisdom in another language is a, is a, sp a space, a place where this greater intelligence can flow through people. And so it's my experience that people will say things that they've never said before. They will actually sometimes actually wonder if they become some kind of channel for, for intelligence, for something that speaks to the room that they're in and the things they're trying to do. So in a very pragmatic sense, collective wisdom is just understanding that certain things can't be done unless it's with others. But at another level, it's it's a energy field. It's an expression of an intelligence that lives in nature and then can be found in an individual and group as well. The, the feeling I have when, when listening to that is I want to go in, in 10 directions. Um, there's a piece of me that wants to talk about machines. <laughs> There's a piece of me that wants to discuss the intangible sensations that can be passed through a camera or a computer or through the phone and thinking about that in the context of fields while also knowing that there's this humanity piece to that that works in conjunction with and one of the things to to be nostalgic quickly <laughs> and mm -hmm. speak about that that beautiful book that i love so much the stirring of soul in the workplace i was struck by something you discussed at length in that book the man and the machine mm -hmm. and i was playing around on a piece of paper the other day and i was writing the man versus the machine the man or the machine the man and the machine and i'm someone who really enjoys considering possibilities in life. I, I consider myself a huge possibility <laughs> all of the time. And I'm so curious to hear from you how looking back at the wisdom from writing that book and also bringing it into present day, I feel like I'm doing that often in this conversation, bringing it to present day and everything mm -hmm. that collectively we've experienced and witnessed is there any new reconciliations in terms of the man and or versus the machine? I think one of my chapter titles was when machines won the day. Uh, I was talking about the transition into the 20th century and the fascination with efficiency. Uh, so let me first speak about folly, which was the second half of your earlier question. And 
you know, as best as I can, I try not to just polarize. Like, is it man? Is it machine? Is it man versus machine? Is it machine versus humanity? I try as best I can to say we can examine these things and we can find maybe errors in how we execute. Uh, but but we don't want to just pit things to each other. And that folly is is it a consequence of people creating extremes that are opposed to each other. So in order for us not to fall into folly, we have to ask this question differently. How are machines an extension of the human mind? How do they serve humanity? And how do they inadvertently create uh, uh, consequences that are that are in error, that are uh, that are opposed to our humanity? So it'd be one thing if someone said human species shouldn't be around anymore and we should just move towards silicon, you know, and let AI, you know, kind of organize the world as it sees fit. That's not a position I would take. AI would still be an extension of human consciousness, you know, of the human, of the way humans ask the question. Machines can't be understood outside of their being constructed by humans, even if they have ultimately an intelligence of their own. So the question is, do we understand how to be with our humanity? And how would machines look and affect what we know about our own humanity? So let's just start in the here and now. One of the things I've really enjoyed talking with you is that you'll often respond with the feeling that arises when I'm speaking. You know, you don't say, well, I'm thinking of, of a counter argument, Alan. You know, you, you respond with a receptivity, with a kind of, this is the feeling that arises. And now here's a thought that's associated with that. And that's staying, that's staying in our bodies. It's staying relational. As soon as we move toward the cognitive in exclusion or or the or pit ourselves against each other or against ideas, we begin to lose the the, the train of thought that could bring us to some greater intelligence. So machines clearly had were an extension. They have served us well in in many ways but we've never really wanted to look at the blind spots you know that if we constructed a city to be able to reach places only by automobile we had no uh way of talking about what that would mean if three million people are in their automobiles all the time when we fell in love with being able to connect uh uh digitally, you know, as we're doing now. I mean, this has allowed me to consult different parts of the world in a way I could never have done. The The computer, which was really uh, just coming to four when I was co coming out of graduate school, I couldn't type well. I couldn't have written my books well on a, on a regular typewriter. I make so many mistakes. I go over and over. I, it, would, it would be a mess. Now, I know people have done it, so it's not an excuse. But I know how technology has allowed me to live the life I've ch chose to live. But it also, and we know this so well, is um, if the incentive is to get more people to sign up, to build marketing revenue by how many you know, like, likes we get, we then start working against what I'm describing as our embodied humanity. We begin to sort of pull on those things that make us competitive with each other, that, that, that we lose self-esteem because we got less likes than our friend got. Uh, we don't have as many cat pictures to share. Uh, we don't look as happy as, as everyone seems to be. And some of this is quite, uh, it, it's not just uh, by chance, it is very much you know, designed to create uh, these different kinds of addictions. Our food is no different. Um, we know that the healthiest places in the world have certain consistency. They don't all eat the same thing, but 
there's a certain um, base of vegetables, of, of healthy grains. When you come to the, the Western world, we also know people love fat, sugar, and salt. And so, again, these it wasn't just we didn't know. We knew that and designed foods to create that kind of addiction. So for me, food is medicine. And we found how to poison us because it served other parts of the population's needs to create an economy, to hire people, so on and so on. So what I'm trying to evoke is that what we're facing is not by accident, but it's not simply evil people. It's people learning how to exist in the kind of field, social field we've created. Um, I, I could say further that a lot of my interest in fields was how we are affected, whether we know it or not, by racism, colonialism, imperialism, uh, patriarchy, because those are features historically that have roots, that you can trace them back. You can see transitions to where one group becomes dominant and begins to reframe the story for people so that their dominance is legitimate. And part of my message is that we're not at fault, even the people who participated. <laughs> you know, we were, we were, we, it didn't start with us. We came into a world that, that said, this is how you need to be if you want to be successful. That's what social groups are for. They tell, they teach us how we have to be to get along, to be successful. But if the social culture has adopted some ways of being that work against our basic humanity, then we're socialized into the wrong things. You know, someone said, I think I'm losing my mind. I said, I think you may be losing the mind that the socialization gave you. That's and that might just be the best thing that could ever happen to you. That's incredibly optimistic. That's how I receive that. I, it's infused with so much optimism. And speaking of roots, I, I adore language <laughs> as one of the, my favorite, my personal favorite tools for connecting with, with other souls in the path to encourage collective wisdom and to acknowledge collective folly when it, when it arises. And from a linguistics perspective, I tend to associate you with another Alan that I'm very inspired by, and that's Mr. Alan Watts. And I was listening to something of him speaking, and he was, <laughs> he was talking about the ceramic model of the universe. And there was a, a line that struck me, and it stayed with me for days, where he talked about how to make something is a different process than observing a growth process and how the making process is distinct from a growth process. And my mind, uh, my mind went to becoming the observer um, and to zooming out by 30 feet as if I was watching that from afar. And it helped, it helped me think more deeply about the nature of control. And I could talk about my own personal roots and, and how my ideas and versions of control have affected me and have affected other people around me. But to, to pick back up on the thread that I also noticed in your book and the idea of the panopticon and how the eye as an organ is related to that and if there's anything there that struck your ear, <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I'd love to talk about how that image, that, that, that historical concept of the Panopticon arose. Uh, but I'd love to hear just how you understand the growth process. You said there's a difference between the making of something and the growth process. And I just wanted to hone in and understand better what, what is... What is behind the growth process? What is observing the growth process? I, I truly appreciate that question. And I'll, I'll relate it to the concept of control in this way. I consider uh -huh. myself and I term myself, at least in this moment, as a very self-driven person. 
And as someone who identifies as a creator and a creative, I'm when I think about composing a sentence or even composing a thought, to me, I relate that as a making and creation process. And when I'm thinking about myself in terms of the growth process, and I, I look behind me, you know, behind each shoulder across the span of my existence and the existences before me, I think about how how the evolution of thought occurs and how ideas and perceptions change over time. And I I witness in the in the mouths of people that I really admire that it never seems it never seems to be certain at the time. And by the benefit of time, I can look back and say, wow, what an amazing growth process. I can say something like that and it becomes almost clinical because I'm, I'm far removed. I can be that, that observer that's away from this, not, not a participant, but an observer at that point. And that sounds really great in, in such a way when I speak about myself. I can rest in the realm of respect in a way because I'm referring to myself and I feel a right to myself to express my existence. As a, as a leader and someone who I'm going to term myself a hesitant leader, I'm very uncomfortable with leadership. I, I would rather withdraw a lot of the times to reference what you said um, earlier in the conversation. However, caring so much, caring so much about what's happening around me, feeling called to do something about that and being in the thick of it and knowing that I can't control perhaps the growth process for beings outside of myself and knowing that that making creative motion in me that becomes instinctive contemplating the ethics around that and whether or not it's creative and and beautiful or if that's really another semblance of control beautiful beautiful so let's let's uh let's do a magic trick and relate all this back to the panopticon which is there is the freedom to grow or not we may not always know oh i'm growing right now but we can look back and see that we've altered our view. We've altered our response to things. You know, if I uh, cried every time someone looked at me and now I don't cry every time someone looked at me, I could say, how have I grown? How have I, you know, what have I changed in how I interact with? But we can also ask what freezes that kind of growth and what freezes that kind of growth is just having no choice but to do what you're being directed to do and being watched constantly is one of those ways of freezing growth uh, so there's a difference between uh, someone feeling a loving parent is watching them and delighted and with them when they fall and feeling watched to, to, to be corrected if they make any mistake. And if you think of it just as an embodied way, what is it like if we feel constantly under that kind of surveillance, that we, we, that we haven't done anything wrong, or that we've performed the way we're supposed to? The Panopticon was a social architecture that froze growth. It was uh, emerged in England was a philosopher. There are been panopticon-like structures in prison systems in the United States and elsewhere, but it was a concept conceived by a philosopher, Jeremy Bentham, and he believed that in the industrializing world at the time, where there was more and more anomalies, people were not fitting into this new way of constructing that you'd work in a factory, you'd be under the eye of, you know, is that those who misbehaved, who were criminal, who, you know, who needed attention could be locked into cells and in the center of the circular building would be someone in a tower who could see 360 degrees and watch everyone in the cell who had no privacy. And this was initially a philosophical idea that was later manifested in brick and mortar, 
but it was the idea that we could socialize people by keeping them under constant surveillance. And even if you didn't know at the moment if someone was watching you, they could be watching you. So there might have been certain shades in the central tower that you couldn't actually look out and see if someone was watching you at the time. You had to believe that at any moment, in every moment, you could be seen. And I used that image as a way of talking about, you know, what I was also seeing at the time, I was writing this in 1995, that through, uh, you know, everything from the architecture of of how buildings were to drug testing, to different ways of monitoring people, that once you entered into an organization, you could begin to feel like you were under that kind of surveillance. You know, talking to people in uh, car manufacturing, you know, they still needed permission to go to the bathroom. That was not uncommon. And they felt this, you know, the supervisor was basically the figure in the panopticon. They were not there to coach. They were not there to support. They were not there to build relationships. They were there for one reason, which is to watch you and to see that you perform according to the instructions you were given. And here emerges again, this concept of fields. And the way I'm going to define that in this moment for me is I'll use the word intrinsic, this intrinsic, I almost feel like it's something's being extracted out of oneself. And when you, when you mentioned that, I thought about two things to root it in work. And as a recruiter, I'm thinking about the various roles and opportunities that I've been privy to understand the day to day of, of different types of work, everything from that fulfillment associate who's working on, on a line on the floor, um, in that type of manufacturing environment where you won't get a bathroom break and, and someone's watching you and they could be on high. They could literally be physically elevated above you, looking down at you from a window and also contrasting that and, and putting it alongside the idea of remote work and the way in which company cultures were able to enter into private spaces. Um, and even just hearing colloquially from people, something like I logged into Slack and I felt like I felt as though I was there um, and the pressure of, of certain human beings to remain at their desk. And it's, I don't want to use the word fascinating, but it's intriguing how it's in the private space. And, and yet that sensation can be, can be felt palpably across the screen. And, you know, always thinking about what is sacred and what can be separated and what should be separated and what rights do we have and what our purpose is. This idea of fields, I, I would be really, I would be really heartened to know how to access that from, from a positive framework that's empowering to the most people. Well, this is the conversation, which is why I'm happy talking with you. This is the conversation I think we have to have more and more. And let's, let's step back again. For me, work has dignity that, you know, my, my father came from Lithuania. He had limited education. He, his brother and he invented this small machine that put rhinestones into fabric. Uh, I worked as a delivery boy. I worked, you know, in a modified assembly line, uh, putting these machines together. Yeah. While it wasn't my favorite thing, there was still the work itself had dignity. You know, if I was delivery boy, I had to take a package from one place to another. I didn't really expect people to look me in the eye. I had to get a signature that I had made the delivery. Um, but I was still kind of had sovereignty. I still, you know, still held that this was work that needed to be done. And so it wasn't the, the quality of the work itself. Um, if one has to earn a living for, to, to be able to have food, to have a family, work has dignity. You're doing that work in order to be able to provide that. So that's one side of it, that it's, it's, it's not that, uh, 
everyone wants to be able to work at something where they're loved, they create something good for the world. Uh, great, I think we need to do more of that. But I also want to honor the dignity of work. There's a, a wonderful movie about a Hispanic man who is a farm worker. Uh, he ends up being an astronaut. And he's talking to his father about how he's treated, uh, you know, because he's Hispanic. They don't recognize that he's an engineer. And, uh, you know, eventually they do, but on his way up. And he says, you know, they're, they're treating me like the, the maintenance worker or something. And his father says, and what's wrong with the maintenance worker? You know, it, it's, it's the dignity that is taken away from work. It's the sense that you mean nothing. We are extracting labor from you. And that's what you're worth to us. And we're not, and it's not very much. And um, two, two thoughts in response to that, you know, I, I want to ask you about gratitude in relation to fields, because that gratitude is something I, I personally closely associate with dignity. And also, I was watching an interview the other day where it was, I think the respectful term is the garbage man, the wonderful person that comes and enables everyone to live by taking away human waste. So someone was speaking to a gentleman where this was his profession, and he was a, a fascinating human being to listen to because the things that he witnesses in his day-to-day -day are so unconventional, and yet they say something poetic about the human experience in my mind. And he talked about just really appreciating when people gave him the dignity of recognition. He, he talked about some form of language where people would say something like, oh, I pay your salary or I'm, I'm the taxpayer, I'm funding your job. And <laughs> this person said that he kept nickels and dimes in his, in his truck <laughs> to say, here, here you go, this is, this is your uh, contribution back. And, and then he also spoke of the people who they, they weren't allowed to take tips or anything like that, but the people who would offer water or simply say thank you or simply look yeah. at him in the eye and say, you exist. And that seems so simple to me to express gratitude in that way. And, and does that relate to fields in the way that you're discussing it now? Well, I, I love what you're saying. And I want to just sort of contrast it with the Panopticon. What seems simple maybe is not simple, which is that we actually see people. We see each other. We encounter each other. And we encounter each other with good intent and maybe a little humor and without being condescending or elitist we recognize i could not be who i am without what without what you're doing and without becoming overly sentimental or philosophical what you described is is the the power of rec seeing people recognizing what they do to contribute and a field a, a relational field is created in that moment in the same way a relational field is created when you don't make eye contact, when you let people know they're not worth anything to you. So what is that relational field? And we could play with that for quite a while, but there is an energy, a vibration, a resonance of different kinds that are created every time we encounter people. And, and because your work is in human resources and because my history is with organizations, to, to bring it to that world. When I started consulting, probably about 87, thereabouts, if I told in, in, a, in a hospital, if I said to a nurse manager or director, do they know the person they're talking with, they're complaining about them, you know, do they know them, do they, have, they, have they built any kind of relationship with them, they would question me whether I was suggesting they become a therapist for them. The word coaching did not exist at the time. I mean, that's an example of how much a system, a cultural system, the idea of coach now is not a threatening term or suggestive that someone needs psychotherapy. It's, it is a foundational skill, even if it's still immature in its development, 
that a manager is also at times a coach, you know, which has certain meanings about actually listening to the person, you know, trying to understand what works for them and what doesn't, uh, trying to build a relationship in which one doesn't feel so intimidated that they can't be who they are. And we also have, and this is a, a term that in the last week has come up a half a dozen times, is how do we create psychological safety? It's a term from Amy Edmondson, her book, The Fearless Organization. And it names that quality, which is, again, the corrective to the panopticon, which is, can you speak up without feeling humiliated or marginalized or punished? And, you know, some of this was uh, amplified by the Google study when they were looking at team effectiveness and trying to understand what constituted team effectiveness. And remember, Google, if anyone is looking at patterns, and they couldn't find anyone, any of these patterns, until they began to sort of apply the concept of psychological safety. And they saw the most effective teams seem to be ones where this, the speaking time for people was distributed more or less evenly, that people felt they could speak without being ridiculed or punished. And it became a kind of corrective, I think, construct, if we look at it in relation to the panopticon, in which we don't care what you think, we just want you to perform under observation. Yes, and to me, the, the words echoing in my head to that was uh, the difference between being watched and looked after, and uh -huh. the, the difference in sensation when when one's perception is shaped that way, regardless of the reality, it's, it's the sensation that is in that other person. And to speak very briefly about patterns, and I feel so blessed, honestly, I feel so blessed to have had the chance to meet you and learn from you in this medium as well. And I, I do hope we will talk again and have another conversation in, in another format or various formats. But to speak briefly on patterns, to return to one of my favorite people, Alan Watts, he was also speaking about the nature of stuff and trying to see behind phenomena into the stuff yes. of it. And then also recognizing that if we become the spectator, it then becomes patterns. So in, the, in an era where we're contemplating data like never before and we're accumulating information like never before, ending on a note of positivity in terms of the, the patterns and then the movements that are happening in society and culture right now globally and ways in which to non-judgmentally look after one another in, in a way that can be perceived, you know, maybe not perfectly or universally in that sense, but an aspect of goodwill that, that will put out light and good energy in the world. Well, again, I'm, I'm, I'm touched and touching the, the, the direction and language of what you're bringing forward. That when we talk about fields, you know, which is what the next, my next book with Mary Jolinas is about, I'm talking about that we're in the vicinity of certain kinds of forces. So the original language of uh, the electromagnetic field, you know, it was a space or territory that's affected uh, and at the time it was uh, described, the only way we understood, uh, we understood repulsion and attraction between mass, between planets. And Faraday and Maxwell came forward and said, what's affecting uh, the movement of the planets is not only their gravitational mass, but other fields like the electromagnetic field, which is in the milieu itself. It's not in the substance of one or the other planet. And so the idea of fields is what are the uh, less conscious or unconscious forces operating in the spaces that we inhabit together. And so you use the language of the difference between being watched versus being looked after. You could begin to say, what is the field created when we feel only watched? And 
you know, with time, you and I could do that. We could begin to say, what are, what are the responses? It may not always be the same for everyone at the same time, but over time, what is that feeling of being watched? There might be one or two who thrive in that type of setting because they're the high performers, but there would be many more who feel it is an intrusion into their world and, and freezes their growth. So what does it mean to be looked after? What's the field? What what is it in the what is the space or territory uh, when the feelings of people is that they're being looked after? And we you know we know this from families. We know it from sports teams. You know, as hyper individualistic as that is, it makes a huge difference if you feel looked after, as opposed to just simply watched for your performance. So I'm going to pivot for a moment because you brought up Alan Watts and, and that triggered is what is the difference between being a spectator or a witness? You know, if I go by an accident on the freeway, I just, you know, I'm drawn to take a look, you know, I'm a spectator. We, we, um, we have unfortunately, uh, an economy built on creating spectators, how much, eyes can we put on the next accident, the next plane crash, the next shooter who goes into a rural area and, and kills people. You know, we become spectators drawn to these, to these anomalies that have now become normalized. To be a witness, different language for this, but to be a witness is to actually care, you know, to, 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 to be present and witness what is happening maybe prior to an action or maybe no action, but it's to, it's to allow oneself to feel. And my colleague works with um, Russell Delman, who's about embodied living. And he uses the term, not witness, but withness. How do we cultivate in ourselves the ability to with all the feelings inside and outside? How do we live with the complexity, the contrasts, the conflicts that emerge inside? How does one feel about X? And it's usually not just one thing. And can you be with all the things that are happening and still be witness to them? Can I be aware of, of anger before the anger directs my behavior? So instead of saying, I never want to be angry, so I'm going to do everything I can to never feel anger. Anytime I even think I'm feeling anger, I'm going to watch a cat video. Um, in and of itself, while it may be that that's good ways to distract oneself, to be with anger is also to grow. And it's not the same as acting from anger. So that continuum from spectator to witness, to witness, is in some ways describing a, a, a way we grow individually and together with each other. That feels medicinal in the sense that I could mention uh, one polarity between the extremes of right and wrong and trying in some senses to enforce behavior patterns as neatly as one can make it from that perspective, falling into right and wrong behavior, actions, thoughts, and speech. And to hear that anger can sometimes be righteous and, and not destructive, not something that, that burns an entire forest, uh, yes. but also something that cleanses and heals. And my friend, I truly appreciate your time <laughs> today. I, I am so excited for everyone, everyone who is looking for that feeling that I was looking for as I entered this conversation today. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. As I do, you're doing important work and you're bringing ideas and thoughts. And I think you're bringing the permission for people to feel and to, and to be in their bodies because that's how you show up. And I think that is healing as well. I, I sit in gratitude at that. Thank you so much. <laughs>
As we come to the close of today's episode, I invite you to join me in reflecting on not only the roles of spectators and witnesses in our lives, but also the profound impact of team dynamics on our collective experiences. In the realm of teams and collaboration, we often witness the transformative power of psychological safety. When individuals feel safe to express themselves authentically, share ideas, and take risks without fear of judgment or reprisal, we see the emergence of effective teams. It's in these environments of trust and respect that collective wisdom flourishes, where the understanding that certain things cannot be accomplished alone becomes evident. Effective teams embody the essence of withness, recognizing that our strengths are magnified and our limitations diminished when we come together in synergy and feel we are in a safe space to contribute our ideas. So, as we navigate our personal and professional landscapes, let's strive to cultivate environments of psychological safety, where every voice is valued and collective wisdom can thrive. Let's embrace the power of effective teams and the transformative potential of collaboration. Thank you for joining me today on this journey of introspection and exploration. Until next time, remember to foster psychological safety, honor collective wisdom, and live your life with purpose and withness. This has been Higher Intelligence, a podcast presented by My Working Soul. See you next time. Learn more about My Working Soul by visiting myworkingsoul.com. And don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the show on YouTube and follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you.